Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up? And welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris. And I am here with my older brother. Wesley. And today, we are talking a film from 1992, currently available on Hulu, The Last of the Mohicans. Wait, uh, really? Is it available on Hulu? You didn't watch it on Prime? Oh, it's on Prime too? Dude, so now I have to check Hulu. I watched the director's cut. Oh, God. Okay, this is going to be interesting. What did you watch on Prime? Amazon Prime has the theatrical cut, uh, which is my preferred cut, of The Last of the Mohicans. The theatrical cut is all about the score and the music. For some reason, Michael Mann let the music and the scoring and the timing all fall by the wayside. The Clannad song in the middle, when Cora and Alice are taken, and Duncan, of course, and Hawkeye and, and Chingachgook and Uncas are chasing them down or tracking them, and she does the little thing where she breaks the limb on the tree you know, to kind of mark their progress. There was a Clannad song featured, appropriately titled I Will Find You, and he just dropped that. It's just like lame score that he put in, he temped in. There's this big swelling reveal like we did for our intro uh, at the end where it crescendos right when we're going to the shot of the hills, and he just blew that. I was so elated that the theatrical cut reappeared in some format that I could access that I was like, immediately, let's watch this. I even specified on Prime, you did your own thing. It's confounding to me. Why would Hulu have a crappy cut? The director's cut outstrips the theatrical cut by like an hour. Wait. I mean, my cut was pretty lean at just under two hours. Was yours a three-hour movie? <laughs> it felt like three hours, but I also watched it twice. Really? Admittedly, the second viewing, I, I was a little bit more selective, but I pretty much watched the film back-to-back, double feature style. Lucky you. I don't know, man. I was like, um, you were asking me last night, like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, <laughs> why are you talking like that? When we chatted quickly and I was in a daze. Last of the Mohicans messed me up. Dude, I thought you were talking about that sweeping grandeur and, and romantic. I thought you were all like in a swoon or something. Well, yeah. I mean, same difference. Okay. <laughs> I came away from The Last of the Mohicans with like that same lovesick feeling I had, you know, watching Titanic when I was 17 years old. I mean, in a way, they are separated by about five years. The uh, Last of the Mohicans was 92. Titanic was 97. But this was sort of my Titanic. 
It's funny that you say that because I had a revelation last night. Last of the Mohicans is Titanic. Is it thematically where they find love against the odds from different classes? Dude, the love story is 99% Titanic. Or maybe vice versa, since Mohicans predates Titanic. That's Yeah, that's kind of the point. It's hard for me to think that way because my thinking is reversed from yours. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, Titanic was like, I was in the perfect sweet spot for when Titanic came out. And I saw it 13 times. I saw it a lot in the theater. So did I. At least six in the theater. Right. And what's your record, by the way? My record is 12 at for Jurassic Park, theatrical. Yeah. Maybe 13 when the 3D re-release came. So they're both stories about loyalty and sedition, right? Whether it's to class or to country. In this case, in The Last of the Mohicans, it's, you know, it's are you loyal to the sovereign British Empire? Are you loyal to your frontier militia peoples? Are you loyal to yourself? Are you loyal to your class? Are you loyal to your station in life? Blah, 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 blah. So in a near-death yes, experience... I don't know about the blah, 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 blah part. <laughs> in a near-death experience, the woman meets the man, right? He saves her, and he blows her mind, right? So Cora's saved by the three trappers, and Rose is saved from suicide by Jack. Uh, she seeks him out to apologize, right? But in the process, falls in love with him. Cora uh-huh. apologizes to... Is his name Nathaniel Poe? Nathaniel Poe, which is better because in James Fenimore Cooper's novel, The Last of the Mohicans, his name was, and he's the hero of, as I understand it, three different stories, Natty Bumpo. (laughs) So they changed it to Nathaniel, presumably the long form of Natty, and Bumpo became Poe because, and I quote, they wanted to avoid titters from the audience. Wow. Well, I think that that was probably a good choice, although he has other funny names. La Longue Carabine. Um, She apologizes to the dude, but of course the man sees her, right? In Last of the Mohicans, you have that delicious scene where she's like, what are you looking at, sir? And what does he say? I'm looking at you, miss. And Rose says, Jack, you really see people. And he says... You're the only thing on this ship worth seeing, baby. Something like that. (laughs) He says, I see you. And then she gives him that same little kind of coquettish, like, I'm embarrassed, but I really love this look. (laughs) (laughs) And then they consummate their love, right? In the the case of the last Mohicans by the ramparts or whatever in the British compound. And in Titanic in the car in the cargo hold. But then, but then the man gets chained up. Nathaniel goes to jail, right? And Jack goes to the master at arms office or whatever. It's pretty much the same scene where they burst in and arrest this man kind of thing. (laughs) Exactly. Well, he's framed by Cal and um, Nathaniel's framed by Duncan. So at that point, you know, the hero's peril is paralleled with the world coming to an end. And the compound is besieged and the ship sinks and... The man saves the woman with his street smarts, and the man encourages the woman that she can make it. She can do it. You're strong. You're a survivor. I think they verbatim say the same thing in both movies. Be strong. Survive. Stay alive. No matter what occurs, I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. So that means, because they run so parallel, that you love The Last of the Mohicans. I love The Last of the Mohicans, and I maybe like it a little bit more because LeBong Carabine goes in peace with the girl. But after he goes in peace with Cora, he murders like 17 people. 
Um, you mean to avenge his brother? Yeah. As Kelly called him, the hot brother goes after Alice. <laughs> Wait a second. Uncas is the hot brother? Don't get me wrong. I, I hear you, Kelly. Uncas is hot. <laughs> but Daniel Day-Lewis is like off the charts in this role. Hot. He's the man. He's always been the man. And until this point, he had never done. He, it was only independent movies. This is his first full scale, massive budget Hollywood movie and maybe his last, frankly. But uh, I mean, I guess that at least on this scale, like a studio picture. But uh, yeah, I think it was right place, right time. And he just happened to be on the cusp of being the greatest actor of his generation. So you don't like um, discredit him for his oily chest and his long hair and his six pack? No, because he can't help it. He's like Jared Leto or he's like like Tom York from Radiohead said that he kind of hates that his voice is so pretty. He has this light, airy, ethereal voice when he wants to be gritty and dirty like a lot of Radiohead music is. Daniel Day-Lewis can't help it if he's got the abs, man. His role called for the shirt being off at some point and his hair just happens to be gorgeous and flowing and he happens to be the man. But he was also super committed. He was living in the dirt. He was carving canoes and junk. So the guy who trained him in weapons said that he was tasked with teaching this guy who had never fired weapons or handled firearms, let alone having to do it on the frontier for a living, he was the son of a poet and he needed to teach him everything from scratch. And Daniel Day-Lewis was all kinds of committed and insisted on living an Indian lifestyle and hunting and trapping and all this kind of junk in preparation and in execution of this role. Of course he did. And they all, they did an awful lot of running. I mean, they're running like 50% of this movie. The whole opening and the the chase, the hunt for um, Magua, uh-huh. they're like running full tilt up like 80 degree inclines, like insane hills. And so Daniel Day-Lewis and Eric Schweig were probably better suited to that, whereas Russell Means, who played Chingachgook, was at the time something like 55 and had settled into a nice, comfortable life and then had to get in mad shape really quickly over like three or four weeks to go charging up the rocks with these kids. Yeah, but he certainly held his own. I mean, he didn't seem like he, at least from the, you know, from the direction, he's still totally holding up. But by the way, I have to say something about Radiohead before I forget. Tom York may sound airy-fairy on his recordings, but like, have you seen Radiohead live? They rock out. Nope, haven't seen them. They blew my mind how loud and rocky they were. Big sound. Anyway. And so he had to nail an American accent, a frontier accent. Maybe there was a touch of English, but the colonials were English. This wasn't even technically America yet. This preceded the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. This is the French-Indian War at about 1757, I believe the exact date was. And this wasn't like, wow, that was a tremendous acting performance. I mean, I think Daniel Day-Lewis is a lovely counterpart in this movie, but it wasn't his severe dedication to the role that came across for me in this movie. It changed the way I perceived movies as so few movies before it had done. Uh, Jurassic Park came along the year after, but it was not the crap that I was accustomed to. It wasn't the, well, it was explosions, but it wasn't standard action movies. This was a historical epic. Do I care about the authenticity? Uh, No. Do I care about the actual logistics of the French and Indian War and how accurately these people were portrayed? Not at all. This was a rock-ass epic that was told with sweeping score and and great cinematography and good acting and action that shaped the way I view movies. It was a formative movie experience for me. Did the love story make an impact on you? Sure. But this was, I mean, even Titanic had a boob, at least in the, in the drawing. This was none of that. 
they didn't do, I mean, they, they never even got the corset off. It was all strings and hands on shoulders and turning to gaze at the sky kind of thing. <laughs> and the understatedness of the love and, and all that stuff. And for a movie that where a lot of people died because they were hacked to death, there wasn't a lot of blood. I think the, uh, I think Monroe going under Magua's knife, as we were foretold, wasn't all that graphic. He held up the heart and it wasn't any worse than Indiana Jones, which it was even more graphic. But the love scene wasn't really a thing. And Uncas's understated love or desire for Alice was never really a thing. The closest we got was when she was always kind of on this verge of losing it. And she got a little bit close to the waterfall and he and he grabs her and drags her back and hugs her. Right. That was the most explicit setting up of their romance, I guess. But uh, it does bear noting that Jodie May, at the time, had her mom on set, refused to allow a love scene because the kid was like 14 or 16. Oh, wow. She did look really young. And there was also that one scene where he looks back at her when they're climbing the rocks by the waterfall, which I think was yeah. a pickup shot. And so they like picked up this like kind of spatially non-referenceable close-up of him, like making sure that she's keeping up or that she's okay. You know what Sean talking yeah. about? Might have been an insert from a, from a new cut. I think, well, I, I, it definitely felt like an afterthought that the filmmakers included to make sure that they planted the seeds for Uncas's connection with Alice. But yeah, I mean, maybe part of the effectiveness of The Last of the Mohicans and part of what really makes it great is how much the filmmakers leave to our imagination. They, at least they weren't holding our hands or shoving things in our faces, but there were no real tricks pulled. It was just understated, but it wasn't a cheat. They built Fort William Henry like to spec. They dug those trenches. They had those giant cannons, obviously not firing projectiles, but they had uh, flaming black painted basketballs and stuff. But the reason I say this movie shaped uh, the way I view movies is because every subsequent historical epic seems to fall short. Titanic is a different story, but I'm saying like any of Edward Zwick's movies, Last Samurai, all that stuff, Legends of the Fall, those battle scenes look absurd to me because of the great lengths Michael Mann went to to make this accurate and immersive on this crazy tremendous scale. Like I felt like where maybe they didn't have scale, they used psychological kind of tricks to make it feel bigger and more menacing. In the ambush, the Huron do the Huron call or whatever on both sides of that yep. thing and totally freak everybody out. Well, you're talking about two things. You're talking about a filmmaking in the sense that they can use psychological tricks to make it feel bigger and scarier. And certainly the music was a big part of that, but also that the Huron were waging psychological war on the British in that particular instance. Yeah. Because they could have coordinated their efforts like the British so ineffectually did by, okay, form ranks, steady with the line, and then everybody fire at the same time to give the Huron enough time to scoot behind the trees and none of them get hit. Whereas they could have fired from cover and decimated a bunch of people at once, but they didn't. They did the cry. They send out the one dude to hack the dude in the head. And then you can feel the fear and panic spread through the group. And why Hawkeye didn't, like, break the chains and run for cover at that particular <laughs> point, I don't know. I'm really glad that you brought up the handcuffs because if he could have busted out at any time, why didn't he? He got the handcuff keys off of the fallen soldier. But oh. the second... So he wasn't, like, faking it. 
No, but the second he is not the focus, because if they were all in, you know, marching along and he made a break for the trees, they would shoot him. But when it's all every man for themselves and the Huron are all around you, he could do whatever he wants. All right. If he started running, nobody was going to, you know, take him out. Right. Well, that helps clear things up because that was a sticking point for me. And also maybe you can help me understand why Cora and Alice don't jump the waterfall. Well, yeah, Kelly said the same thing. Or why Duncan didn't jump the waterfall. Because if there was going to be violence, and there was, it was against Duncan. But I don't think Duncan would have left them. As much as he was, I think he was a good guy, right? He just was a little bit misguided in following specifically the orders of his crown and uh, making sure that his woman wasn't taken over by some savage or something. He wouldn't have jumped even given the opportunity or the invitation, right? Because he would stay with the women? Right. It would have been his duty to protect them, whereas Hawkeye, as much as he didn't want to go, they acknowledged the fact that there was no chance if they didn't go. If they went and if the, the women were kept alive long enough, he would find them no matter what. It was, I guess it was implied that they knew what they were doing. They weren't weighed down by the dresses or whatever. Alice most likely wouldn't have survived. It seems like they made it through okay, but it might have. their chances might have been better. They had no idea. It's a hard thing. He was leaving them to possible torture, to rape, to being burned in the Huron fires, to heal Magua's heart and to avenge the death of his family. It could have been bad. Yeah. I mean, they were hoping for the best. I get that their deaths would have been in vain because with no weapons, they couldn't defend themselves and they wouldn't be spared. So I get it, and I'm glad that Cora got it, because Cora is consistently not annoying in this film. The dresses <laughs> make a lot of sense. That that holds a lot of weight for me. <laughs> <laughs> and Duncan justifies his stance, too, when he calls them cowards and deserters. So Yeah, but she acknowledges she's on top of it. She knows what they were planning, and she fully advocated it. They all kind of got, you know, their roles and how this was kind of the best scenario and most likely scenario for survival so okay. and also it looked cool when they jumped out of the waterfall <laughs> but this movie wasn't just all action the interpreter scene when he uh when he walks in with a belt to tell the tale of his people to legitimize his role among the mohican people was really complex i mean they were speaking they were supposed to have been speaking french huron english and they actually weren't because, you know, you're getting Native Americans from all different tribes. The guy who was playing Sashem was speaking Lakota or something. And West Duty, who was who played Magua, was speaking his native tongue. And so no one can tell because it all sounds Native American to us. So that was pretty cool. But it was a complicated scene. And we're going along with Duncan translating. And so there's some nuance there and some real purpose in making this not just a, a dumb action movie. Well, that scene is marked by its real sense of urgency, like especially when you see Duncan get burned at the stake, like moments after they take off, like decisions are being made. You got to get your last word in and Sashem. Yeah, well, which it just means elder or wise one. It wasn't his name. Because the wise one's making his decision and he's making them decisively. So that whole scene was elevated with its sense of urgency. And you've got the confusion with all the different languages. And Duncan is furiously translating in the background. And they do a really good job with the mix, keeping that kind of there as a reminder that it's happening, but it's not interrupting the dialogue. It was really well done. 
And at the same time, if you weren't paying close attention, if you were like, oh, boring dialogue scene, you don't get the moment where Duncan mistranslates and Hawkeye doesn't understand or doesn't catch it at first. Or he just, I mean, Hawkeye just assumes that he's translating verbatim and doesn't realize that he's, yeah, he doesn't realize he's substituted himself, which is Duncan's ultimate redemption. Um, Not that he, like you said, was a bad guy, but to, to show that like his love for Korra and maybe even his respect for the Mohicans, you know, had kind of really crystallized. It's really hard because you don't want to like Duncan. Once we meet Hawkeye, you know where that's going. And he's kind of a doofy looking dude. And then when he's being led away to his death, Duncan says, my compliments, sir, take her and get out. It's like the noblest thing I've ever heard. He He couldn't be like, I hate you. You win, you bastard. He said my (laughs) compliments as he was led off to be barbecued. What does that make you feel? What a How does that make you feel? Look, I can't help it. This movie stirs up lots of emotions for me. Like what emotions? It's it's heroic. It's romantic. It's those aren't emotions. Executed. I, you know, I can feel choked up at times, and that in particular this time around, I was like, Duncan, you sweet bastard, <laughs> and uh, it just. He sacrificed himself, and honestly, he didn't have to. He was on his way home, but he was on his way home without Korra, who was going to die. I couldn't tell at that point if Sachem was speaking directly to Magua in Huron when he was saying that the English officer goes back so that their English hatred burns less bright. At that point, he he and Magua were speaking in French, and then he switches back to Huron to give his final decree. West Duty had to speak Huron or whatever dialect he was speaking that was passing as Huron and English and French. How did he not get top billing? Plus, he's a Wes, along with me and Snipes, the only other prominent Wes I know. Well, maybe Magua should stop referring to himself as Magua. In the third person? (laughs) Yes, and then you might sound a little bit more civilized. West Duty is the man. He's still doing his thing. I mean, just before this, he was in Dances with Wolves. He was the main uh, evil, what was it, Pawnee? You know, I saw that recently, too. You know, like, what is it about? You know from the moment he enters screenwrite that he is a bad dude. What is it about him that just belies his badness? It's his Danny Trejo-style face and also his grumbly, scary, terrifying delivery. Like, he can only play super bad guys, right? I mean, I guess. Except he was one of the Counselor Jerry's in Soul. Yeah, well, Soul is a whole... I mean, you don't see his face. <laughs> no, you don't have to. I was like, West Duty? Really? Okay. <laughs> but what about... Uh, what's his face's cameo? Your favorite dude. The guy who was in Inception and, and was Kaiser Sose's associate. Oh, Pete Postlethwaite, yeah. He actually played Daniel Day-Lewis's father in In the Name of the Father a few years later. Oh, okay. But in this one, he comes in... Uh, and arrests him. Arrests him. Yeah. So it was great to see him. Even Kelly perked up when she saw him and asked me his name again. And I've gone to great pains to make sure I say Postlethwaite correctly. I can tell you something about Last of the Mohicans that you don't know. Go. Best of luck. <laughs> so Last of the Mohicans is based on a novel. And it was adapted previously. And that adaptation inspired the screenplay for the 1992 version of The Last of the Mohicans. Do you know who is credited with that adaptation, the original adaptation? I do not know this. John Balderston. Do you know who John Balderston is? I feel like I should, but I do not. (laughs) John Balderston was the original adapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula to the play which also inspired the Todd Browning Bela Lugosi Dracula. 
Interesting. I mean, all this Dracula stuff relates to another thing that we're talking about, another project that we're looking into. Which is the only reason why I would in any way know who John Balderston is, who lived from 1889 to 1954. But his adaptation is credited posthumously for 1992's Last Mohicans. I mean, Michael Mann himself said that he was hugely influenced by the 1930s, Last of the Mohicans. I just thought it was a really interesting connection that these sweeping pre-20th century stories were formed by the same person, Dracula and the Last of the Mohicans. Very cool. Honestly, sweeping is the right word for this movie because I'm sure there was some CG here and there, rudimentary stuff. I didn't see it. It feels so real using the natural settings. I mean, it's all about you and I were raised going to Yosemite, going to Sequoia, being out in the trees, on on the granite, scrabbling around and stuff. And this movie dovetailed nicely with my love of those natural places and waterfalls and rivers and things. Like, it makes me excited to watch this movie, and I feel like it informed a lot about my life. Um, I can tell you something you don't know about The Last of the Mohicans, well, sure. there's no reason you would. I figured there'd be plenty of things that I wouldn't know, but go for it. It's, it's actually unrelated to the production of the movie. Before the crash, uh, in from the big short, in 2008, before the financial crash and the housing crash, I was working at a company that produced real estate brochures. So if you have those gigantic four, five, six million dollar properties, those deserved glossy multi-page brochures to try to sell it for people like Coldwell Banker and all in Sotheby's and places that were selling high-end properties. And one day it came across my desk, this like six page brochure bound with a staple with glossy images of Chimney Rock State Park in North Carolina. And I took one look at the pictures and I went, <gasps> because that is where they filmed the last of the I was going to ask, because some things were pretty reminiscently Yosemite. Right. It felt like it. And that's why I feel like when I'm in Yosemite, I'm in that world. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's in North Carolina. Somebody was selling Chimney Rock State Park. Wait, into private hands? It's not a national park? It's a state park. And they were selling it with the mandate that it had to be had to remain a state park for a period of X number of years or something. So it was changing hands. For all I know, the state was selling it. Maybe it was they were selling the commission? Guess all I know is I got a brochure and you know how you see that thing that you want and you desire so much that it makes you anxious and makes you immediately question all your decisions that brought you to a place in life that was less than what you wanted to achieve. Okay. I was like all anxious and annoyed. You know <laughs> you how much Chimney how... <laughs> Rock North Carolina State Park was going for? More than you had. $55 million. And I fantasized about f- having $55 million and $300 because I would have bought that state park, used the rest to buy a shotgun, and just wandered the wilderness for the rest of my days. Wow. Like all into the wild style? Imagine owning that place any more than you could own Yosemite. <laughs> I would have immediately boarded that place up and it would have been just me and the deer. I was going to ask where this is filmed because the the setting is such a character and it's used so masterfully and so subtly. Like, you know, going behind the waterfall and stuff is so cool. And the idea that there's caves and stuff back there is like so, you know, just dangerous. It does wonders for sparking the imagination. It's supremely dangerous. It makes our heroes that much more badass when they jump off of it. But it's best used when in that final scene, when Sashem 
is seated right, not right in front of the waterfall, but the waterfall is like, you know, falling off in the background and it just underscores his wisdom and his authority and his place in the tribe. Like, and it's done in like this quiet way. It's not like pounding in the background or whatever. It's just this beautiful waterfall that, you know, is flowing behind him. And maybe that's the key to this movie is, is recognizing its nuance, how a whole lot of people were hit over the head in this movie, but the viewer not necessarily. It wasn't gory. It wasn't disturbing in the way that maybe Braveheart was later on a few years later. I was going to ask about that, too. Like, you don't feel it like... Was tasteful. But Braveheart is pretty epic, pretty sweeping, pretty yep. well done, and balances the battles with the love story. Like, didn't do you feel like um, it's a good corollary to The Last of the Mohicans? Braveheart, which won Best Picture in 1995? Sure. I mean, it was a lot more graphic, and that turned a lot of people off because Mel Gibson, you know... He, he had no qualms with cutting off limbs and junk, but Last of the Mohicans was positioned for that. I mean, I think Michael Mann used his settings, his actors, uh, his story, his, his the music, the sound. It won an Oscar for Best Sound, but it was a big, well-made historical epic that just seemed to find me at the right point in my life. One Oscar, one for sound. That's it. And the sound is great but it didn't win anything else. He had touted it as being one of the most ambitious and certainly the most accurate, period accurate movies ever made. And then people were like, eh, okay. I'm not sure why it didn't connect. Guess who has not seen The Last Mohicans? Brian. He was like, Last Mo oh, you like that movie. I'm going to go do some bills. This didn't catch on for a lot of people the way it did for me. Well, you were also like so impressionable, just like I was for Titanic. You were 16, 17, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, Last of the Mohicans. Like it's no coincidence that all of these movies came out around the same time. You were just in the sweet spot. Look, I completely agree. The question is, would there be an or whatever movies podcast if you had not seen The Last of the Mohicans? Probably not. And I'm going to give it a totally rating may be my most biased review ever because I think there's so much that I took from this movie. It just happened to be maybe at the right place, right time for me. And there you got it. A totally from Wes, a totally from Iris. That's our review on The Last of the Mohicans. You can thank this film for or whatever movies. I'll go with that. 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. Tell us what you think about The Last of the Mohicans. Thanks for listening and... How do they say goodbye in Mohican? In Mohican? Or French, or Huron, or Frontiersman English. C'est la vie. Or, or by your leave. Peace be with you. And go in peace. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. 
but I like Airplane. I know you do, but WannaBet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.